friends. Welcome to the Skyline Church Podcast. I'm Jonathan Middlebrooks, one of the pastors here at Skyline Church. Skyline is a worshiping community, a disciple-making community, and a generational community. We're committed to seeing revival in our city sparked through the presence of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. These sermons are specific to that purpose and in the context of our unique community. We hope that it might bless you in some way. Enjoy. got a Bible with you or maybe your device, if you'll open up with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Acts is in the New Testament, back like third of your Bible, sandwiched in between John and Romans. And while you get there, allow me to set the scene that Luke, who is the presumed author of Acts, is trying to set himself. He's writing to this guy, or maybe this group of people, that he calls Theophilus. Theophilus simply means friend of God. And uh, he begins by reminding Theophilus about some of the ways in which that Jesus has encountered people after his resurrection, which is perfect for us because for the last few weeks, this is exactly the teaching series that we've been going through. We've been looking together at Jesus encountering people after his resurrection and what happens as a result. So let's play Luke here for a second and remind ourselves of some of the encounters that we have talked about in the last few weeks. We've seen how Jesus has entered into hopeless situations with people who feel hopeless and who are leaving what they previously knew. And Jesus, like only he can, restores their hope, and they return back. We've seen Jesus enter into situations filled with fear and anxiety. And again, like only he can, he takes that fear and anxiety and exchanges it for confidence and joy in the fact that he has overcome the grave. A couple weeks ago, we got to look at the story of Thomas right at the end of the book of John. And Greg, I'm so thankful that uh, you reminded us how much it would um, not be good if we were defined like Thomas often is by his lowest point. And I've just decided I'm going to stop calling Thomas Doubting Thomas because of that. But even though Thomas was doubting, Jesus met him in the midst of that doubt and said, I want to give you faith. And last week, Jonathan did a great and powerful job of showing us in that encounter that Jesus has with Peter after his resurrection. Peter, who denied Jesus at the time that he needed him most, and surely was filled with shame and embarrassment as a result. And Jesus meets Peter in his shame and restores him and empowers him. Today, we're actually wrapping up this series Uh, Because the encounter that we're going to be talking about here in Acts chapter 1 is Jesus' last recorded encounter before and as he ascends into heaven. Next week is Pentecost, um, and traditionally in the church calendar, the Sunday before Pentecost is uh, acknowledged as Ascension Sunday, and so what better place to be in our text today than uh, this one here. So, with all that in mind, let's dive in. Acts chapter 1, I basically just gave you the first three verses in a lot longer than Luke did. Um, So, let's go to uh, verse 4. On one occasion, 
While Jesus was eating with the disciples, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. As he's leaving, Jesus says, wait for the Holy Spirit. The disciples then gathered around him, verse 6, and said, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, Jesus was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. The disciples were looking up intently into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Now let's pause here for a second before we dive in that much deeper, because for the sake of our reading this story well this morning, we need to make something perfectly clear. And that is this, that what we just read in those few verses, what's happening here is unbelievably unusual. It's unbelievably unusual. Now I say that because perhaps you've read or heard this story a time or two or a hundred before, and when I started talking about what we were reading, maybe you could jump ahead and you already knew what I was going to read. Or maybe you didn't know the story, but you're pretty familiar with the fact that this Jesus guy does some pretty incredible things, and he's found pretty often doing them in the scriptures. So maybe this story doesn't come as a massive surprise. I think it's a great exercise for us every time we open this up to try to open it up with as fresh of eyes and heart as possible. Because we just casually, in 11 verses, told a story about the God-man who was brutally killed, rose from the dead, convincingly and repeatedly proved that he was indeed alive, and then went to be taken up into the sky before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from, or hid him from their sight. Like, this is wild. <laughs> this is crazy. You and I have never seen anything like this before. And so it makes total sense, right, that the disciples are found the way that they are in verse 10, looking intently up into the sky. Another translation would say that they were straining to see where Jesus was going. And as they're looking up into the sky, they're suddenly interrupted by the presence of these angelic-type beings. Can you imagine how disorienting a time this would have been for these people? We skip this part, but in verse 3, it tells us that Jesus had appeared to the disciples for a period of over 40 days. So in the course of about a month and a half, these men have gone from devoting their lives to this man, only to see him brutally murdered, but as all hope seemed lost, a few days later, they were told that he rose from the dead. Then he appeared to them in order to confirm it and to continue to teach them. Uh, but now, after all this, he's, he's leaving. Where's the sense in that? 
thought the resurrection was all about conquering and victory, and now Jesus has the perfect example or the perfect time to exemplify this. But he's leaving. And not only that, but he said, you will be my witnesses. He's expecting us, he's expecting the disciples to in some way carry on this thing that has been entirely dependent on him to this point. You can see their confusion in their question to Jesus in verse 6 about restoring the kingdom of Israel, right? Jesus literally tells them, wait. And in verse 6, they're like, yeah, but like right now is the time, right? They're just, they're just way off. They're confused. Then a couple of verses down, they basically have to get shaken out of the trance they're in after Jesus ascends into heaven. And surely them looking up intently into the sky is in large part due to adoration and awe at what they just saw. But could it also be that their gaze into heaven had a little bit of what the heck do we do now mixed in to it? Although we just established a second ago that, that we've never seen anything like this, I would venture to say that we've had an experience similar to this. Sure, we might not have had the privilege of seeing someone ascend into the clouds or seeing anybody be resurrected from the dead, but I'm positive we've all had moments or will have moments that have made us stare off into the distance thinking, what do we do now? We just celebrated our seniors last week. Maybe it's walking into a dorm room for the first time with brand new people in a totally new place thinking, what's this going to be like? We just had finals this week at OCS. I saw a few students open up their tests and their faces filled with, what is this? <laughs> You're poring over your budget and plugging in numbers for what seems like the thousandth time, thinking, what are we going to do? Your romantic life hits a series of significant bumps or maybe wasn't even able to begin in the first place. And your mind is consumed with wondering, where do I go from here? You get in your car after a difficult and unfulfilling day at work and you sit there for a second and all you can say is, what am I doing here? You hang up the phone after hearing about a loved one's recent diagnosis, or maybe even a diagnosis of your own. Staring off into the distance, thinking, what do we do now? See, we too know what it's like to be thrown for a loop and experience uncertainty in life. And it's in times like this that I think it's often our first instinct for us to take that what do we do now thought or emotion in one of two directions. The first direction is assumed action. And if we're being honest with ourselves, this assumed action is often hurried or rushed. Confusing times are disorienting and they're uncomfortable. And in an attempt to uh, gain some clarity or to escape some discomfort, oftentimes we assume a big move is needed and we go for it. Now, there's nothing wrong with a little bit of conviction, right? I probably need a little bit more of that in my life. But acts of conviction assume clarity. Whereas when we're confused, what is it except for the next steps being clouded? And oftentimes, assuming a solution is rarely the solution. This reminds me of the golden calf situation in Exodus. 
right? The Israelites get, get out of Egypt. They've seen these wild things just happen, the plagues, the Red Sea. They get to Mount Sinai. Moses goes up on the mountain. There's some crazy stuff happening there. He's been up there for a while. And after a while, they get a little bit restless. After a while, surely we've got to do something. We've got to do something, right? Aaron, we've got to do something. Let's make a God. When Moses asks Aaron about this later, you hear this in Aaron's voice. Like Aaron says, well, we just like put some gold into a big pot and out jumped this calf. But sometimes that's how it feels, right? Whenever we assume and rush into that action, a lot of times it feels like that. The disciples are kind of assuming action on Jesus here again in verse 6. He says, wait, and in their confusion, they're ready to storm the castle, overthrow Rome. Hey, this is the time, right? This is the time. And this is the problem with this type of reaction to times like this in our lives. Oftentimes, unfortunately, our assumptions are just off. And when they are rushed into, they often bear consequences that Jesus never desired for us. So on one hand, we have this assumed action that, again, if we're being honest with ourselves, is often hurried or rushed. But on the other hand, we can have passive and painfully slow inaction. This is my wheelhouse. Passive and painfully slow inaction. I am an Enneagram 6, uh, which means a lot of good things, right? There you go, Corey in the back, yeah. Which is so crazy, right? Because it means a lot of good things, but an Enneagram 6 is often uh, like characterized by like worst-case scenario thinking, paralyzed by fear. So well done for like raising your hand and admitting that you're an Enneagram 6. Well done. Uh, the, the best way I've heard this explained, uh, this like tendency I have sometimes, is uh, paralysis by analysis. I'm a coach and a teacher. I, I like quippy sayings. Paralysis by analysis. Now, just like the assumed action that we talked about, there's some good at, this, at the heart of this type of response. Because oftentimes our inactivity in times of confusion is just a confession of humility. I, I have no idea what to do. So what am I going to do? Nothing. Nothing. I'm just going to sit here. Yet God has not made humanity to be passive people paralyzed by fear or dismay. And as I read, especially the Gospels, man, maybe nothing is more clear that the thing that Jesus wants to set us free from is fear, paralyzing fear. First John. First John says, perfect love casts out all fear. One of my favorite passages of Scripture that has helped me realize the, the folly of uh, this tendency that I have towards paralysis by analysis is again in Exodus. In Exodus chapter 14, the Israelites are walking, they don't know it yet, but they're walking towards the Red Sea. Again, they've seen all this cool stuff just happen, walking towards the Red Sea. They get there and they're like, that's a sea. They turn around and they realize all of a sudden oh, the Egyptian army, the most powerful army in the world is chasing us. So there's a sea there, most powerful army in the world right there. They turn to Moses, they're like, all right, we're dead. We're dead. Why'd you bring us out here just to die? Moses, Exodus 14, 14, responds, with, this is a pretty good tattoo verse, by the way, if you're looking for one. <laughs> Exodus 14, 14, says, the Lord will fight for you, you need only to be still. The Lord will fight for you, you need only to be still. But before you get that tattooed, I want to tell you what's, what's verse 15. 
because in verse 15, God literally says to Moses, what are you doing? Keep going. I didn't bring you here to die. Keep going. This sounds a little bit like what the angels are saying to the disciples in our story today. They're standing and they're staring and the the angels come up next to them and say, why do you stand there looking into the sky? This is a really interesting thing for the angels to say because, again, we look back in the story, Jesus anticipated this confusion. In his anticipation, he offered this insightful and informative, instructive command. Four little words, we've already talked about them. He says, "Do do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. Wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. Wait. What is Jesus' final command to his closest friends as he knows they are in one of the most confusing seasons of their life? It's wait. Wait for the gift. And it's interesting that the angels would say this because in the most literal sense, I, I guess the disciples are waiting as they look up into the sky. But what the angels make clear by this sentence is, to paraphrase George Strait, there's a difference in waiting and waiting well. There's a difference in waiting and waiting well. Man, this seems like such a simple command, just to wait. And it is. However, simple and easy are are far from synonymous. Waiting as we experience confusion and uncertainty can honestly be one of the hardest things that we're asked to do in life. And if we're being honest with ourselves, oftentimes we can feel like waiting in the midst of confusion is not the solution, but it's actually the problem. And yet Jesus says, wait. Fortunately for us, the difference between waiting and waiting well is also captured in that same command in verse 4. Listen to what Jesus says directly following his command to wait. Wait for the gift. Wait for the gift that my Father promised and you have heard me speak about. Friends, we don't wait aimlessly or hopelessly running to any one solution that we can find because we have to figure this all out for ourselves. We're not forced to wait paralyzed in the fear of the unknown. We wait for a gift. A gift that has been promised and sealed up for us by our Heavenly Father and revealed to us in His glorious Ascendant Son, Jesus. And if that wasn't enough, the gift is more of God, the Holy Spirit. I'm not a Greek scholar by any means, so don't test me on that, but I can do a little research. Literally, the Greek here, when referring to the Holy Spirit, is is hagionumatos. And one of the ways that you can translate that means holy or sacred breath. Could there be a more intimate expression of God than him filling us with his own breath? And in verse 8, we're told that through this sacred breath, we will receive power. But really, what, would make, what could make more sense 
than for the breath of God that uttered the first words that began this whole world and animated humanity, what could make more sense than that those would bring unimaginable power and resolve to those who that breath was poured out upon? Wait for the gift. Jesus says he has previously spoken about this gift. What did he say? John 14. The Father will give you the spirit of truth to be with you and advocate with you forever. He says you will not be left as orphans. Jesus talks about the spirit again in Luke 11. He says ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. At the end of that section, he says, how much more will your Father in heaven be pleased to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Again, we have not been left to wait aimlessly. Hi, Sonny. To wait aimlessly, hopelessly, or powerless. The one who spoke the world into existence has spoken promises over us and gifted us in the most intimate and powerful way that we could imagine by promising to fill us with his own presence and his own powerful breath. He has not left us as orphans, but in a wild twist, he's actually given us more of himself. And according to Luke 11, this changes everything. According to Luke 11, the Father is pleased to do this. You don't have to twist his arm. You don't have to convince him to do this for you. He's pleased to give you this gift in the midst of our waiting. He's pleased to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. The band can come back up. I remembered, thankfully. Man, when viewed this way, waiting starts to seem like a pretty desirable option. Why would we want to run ahead of our powerful, loving, gift-giving God who holds the keys to life, death, and the grave? What if he actually meant what he said when he told us to ask, seek, and knock, and that he's pleased to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? What if he actually meant that? What if he actually meant that he has not left us as orphans He has not left us as orphans, but he's also asked us not to leave him. You can imagine Jesus saying to those of us who are waiting, please don't run ahead of me. You don't know the way as well as I do. You don't know what's out there. You don't know what I want to lead you into. Please keep following me. You could also hear Jesus saying, please keep following me. I'll just sit in your fear. I want to lead you into more than you could ever ask or imagine. I love Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And for a long time, I think I viewed that as like, oh, Jesus is going to light up the way. But... They didn't have electricity when Psalm was being written. They didn't have street lights. They didn't have big spotlights. Literally what this refers to is when you're walking in the dark on an ancient road that's definitely uneven, you'd hold a lantern right next to your feet so you could see the next step. 
I know what you're asking me to do in the next day. You're asking me to love people. You're asking me to keep going. I know what you're asking me to do in the next hour. <laughs> I know what you're asking me to do with the next step. If we stay near to Jesus and follow him, how we know to for the next hour, for the next step, before too long, we'll look up and we'll have no choice but to be right in the will of God. Where do the disciples go in their confusion after hearing this from the angels? Verse 12. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem. Where did Jesus tell them to wait? Jerusalem. They did the next right thing. They returned to Jerusalem, to the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath, day, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. Verse 14, they all joined together constantly in prayer. They all joined together constantly in prayer. What better way for us to be near to our powerful, loving, gift-giving God than to be in constant communication with Him? better way to prepare ourselves to be filled with the Holy Spirit than to be found doing the exact thing that Jesus commanded us to do. Ask, seek, knock. I told you Pentecost is next week. The next chapter in the book of Acts is the Pentecost account. Some really cool things that happen there. start of that, Acts 2 verse 1, listen to what it says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Doing what? Waiting. And in their waiting, God did something miraculous, powerful. Could it be that in our waiting, he wants to do the same? They joined together constantly in prayer here and we sing together. Um, our prayer team is going to be up here up front. If you want to follow the example that these disciples, great example that they're giving us today, to join together constantly in prayer, we'd love to do that with you. We were in the prayer room before this talking and somebody alluded to the idea of, of man, it's so helpful in waiting to borrow each other's faith. I'm so bought into that idea right now. We've not only not been left as orphans because God is with us, but join together constantly in prayer. If you need to borrow somebody's faith, go for it. I'm sure they'd love to give it to you. It's such a privilege and a pleasure to be able to wait with all of you.